All right, so today we are going to be continuing in our sermon series in Philippians. We're going to be covering verses 18 through 26. Today I'm going to cover the back half of 18, uh, verse 18, and then all the way through verse 26. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the text. We are going to pray. I want to set, kind of set the stage uh, a little bit, and then I have four points for you today, four points uh, today. So we're in Philippians chapter 1 starting in the back half of verse 18. Actually, I'm just going to read all of 18 because it's weird to start in the middle of a verse. It feels wrong for me. Let's start in 18. Uh, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, we, uh, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. God, thank you for your great love for us. God, thank you that you've given us your word. God, thank you that you are not a God who is distant. You are not a God that leaves us uh, to our own devices to just figure out what you want and who you are and how you operate. But Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word by which you reveal yourself to us. God, thank you that you, the God of the universe, the one who holds everything together, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, the one who knows every hair on our head. God, thank you that you care about us enough to reveal yourself to us. God, thank you that you've placed it in the heart of Matt and Daniela to share this, this, this God that loves these indigenous people that have never heard, that have never known the love of a God who cares for them. God, be with us as we study your word today. God, I pray that it would work in our hearts. God, that you would reveal yourself to us uh, through the reading of your word, through the preaching of your word. God, be with me, Lord, as we study the text. God, I pray that it would impact my heart, that it would transform my life, just as it's going to transform the lives of those here within its hearing. God, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I've titled my sermon today, Gospel Citizens. And the reason that I titled that to the sermon that today is that the book of Philippians is a book written to a church in a city that valued citizenship highly. If you remember back in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were beaten, they were thrown in jail, and then you remember they were singing and the walls, fell, like all the gates opened and all that kind of stuff. So... When the rulers found out, remember in Acts chapter 16, I don't know when we covered Acts chapter 16 here, but many, many moons ago, we did. And when the rulers found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they, they freaked out because they were like, 
oh my gosh, we should not have beat them and thrown them into jail because these citizens, ha these are Roman citizens and they have rights and privileges. So when the people in Philippi hear about citizenship, they have a context for it. They have a box to put it in. They understand the importance of citizenship. They understand the importance of what it means to belong to a country that has power behind it. And so Paul, when he's writing this letter to that church, he speaks to them in their language. He speaks to them in such a way that they can understand. So we can see that Paul writes this, this book from the lens of gospel citizenship. In chapter 3 of Philippians, in verse 20, Paul says to the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So we can see that Paul tells the Philippians pretty plainly in chapter 3 that their citizenship is not one of Rome, it is not even one of earth, but it is one of heaven. And so that's a pretty obvious spot where Paul really leans into that concept. But the, there's another place, and it's kind of in the middle of this passage here, where it's a little more nuanced, that Paul is going to tell them that they are citizens of something greater than what they think. And we can see that in verse 27. Now, I know verse 27 is out of the scope of what I'm going to preach on today, but I think it's very important because what it does is it lays the groundwork for this passage itself, and it actually lays the groundwork for why Paul can respond the way that he responds to hardship, how, why he respond, the way that he responds to death, the way that he responds to other people, and the way that he responds to the world in general. So if we look in verse 27 of chapter 1, we can see that it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Chris is going to cover this next week. He's going to do an amazing job working out what it means to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. But if, you're, if you have the ESV, if you look next to the word worthy, there's a footnote right there. In mine, it's the little number eight. And in, in the ESV, the footnote says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this passage where it says, walk in a manner worthy, or only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the literal Greek phrase is behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, why am I pointing this out? Why do we need to get into the nuance of the Greek or whatever? Like, that's a good question to ask because when somebody, usually when somebody says, well, it actually means in the Greek, it means that they're justifying whatever position that they want to have. So that's, I mean, typically cynical towards people who are like, well, actually, this is what it says um, because they looked it up on Blue Letter Bible or whatever. But... This is in the footnote, so like there's a little bit more context here. I'm not making this up. The reason Paul leans into the citizenship idea is because our identity always informs our behavior. Who we are always dictates what we do. And it's not a new concept. You've heard this from me a handful of times. I'm sure you've heard it from Chris and from others, that God always establishes who we are before he establishes what we need to do. Paul, uh, Paul never leans into a letter and says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. He never does. He's always starting with who God is and who God is informing who we are and who we are informing what we do. Identity drives behavior. The book of Ephesians is my favorite illustration of this. 
Paul in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 talks about who God is, and chapter 2 talks about who we were, chapter 3 talks about how that works itself out, and then in chapter 4 he says, therefore, because you are new, because you have been transformed, because you have been brought from darkness into light, therefore walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians are all about what we need to do in light of who we are. So what Paul is doing here in Philippians is he's doing the exact same thing. He's saying, because you are a citizen of heaven, only behave as a citizen of heaven. So Paul actually illustrates in the verses preceding verse 27 what it means to be a citizen of heaven, what it means to be a gospel citizen. So Paul's laying the groundwork by his own behavior how we ought to behave as citizens of God. Paul always establishes identity before he establishes what we are to do because he understands that who we are defines what we do. You remember back in John chapter 8, we covered that a little while ago where Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, so you're going to do the works that your father the devil does. So it's not just a Pauline concept, it's a Jesus concept, it's a Bible concept. You can see it in the Old Testament as well. But today we are going to cover four marks of gospel citizens, four marks of gospel citizens from verses 18 through verse 26, four marks of gospel citizens. And this, these, are, these are the way that Paul reacts to the things around him. He's reacting as a citizen of heaven. So first, gospel citizens rejoice and have courage in the midst of hardship. Gospel citizens rejoice and have courage in the midst of hardship. That's verses 18 through 20. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Now, obviously, verse 18, we're picking up in the middle of the verse. If you remember the section before this, Paul is rejoicing in something very odd here. He's rejoicing in the fact that people are trying to get him thrown in prison and beaten and ultimately killed. He's rejoicing in that fact. Why is he rejoicing in that fact? He's rejoicing in the fact because Christ is being proclaimed and he is being preached even through people's impure motives. Paul's in a really bad spot. He's in jail. Jail's not a great place to be. It's not a great place to be now. It wasn't a great place to be then. Like, they didn't have color TV and foosball tables or whatever. Like, it's a bad, it was, it was a much worse condition than it is even today. And I don't want to go to jail today. I certainly don't want to go to jail on Paul's day. But Paul, instead of being grumpy about it, instead of complaining about it, instead of saying, this isn't fair, why, God, did you throw me in jail? He rejoices. He has courage. He has hope. Because his focus is not on his citizenship of Rome, his focus is not even a citizen of earth, but rather Paul's focus is one as a citizen of heaven. Paul's mindset is such that he can see the joy and the good and the bad that is happening in his life because he knows and understands that Christ is with him. So there are three reasons here in this text in verses 18 through 20 why Paul can rejoice and have courage. The first reason that he can rejoice is that Paul has people praying for him. So in verse 19, he says, 
or 18, he says, yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers. Paul is putting a lot of stock in the prayers of the saints for him. He's putting a lot of stock in the fact that there are other people who are praying to God on his behalf and he believes that God is going to answer those other people's prayers. Is it not an amazing thing that we can pray to God and God will respond on behalf of someone else? The prayers that we pray for Matt and Daniela are not just prayers thrown up and they're not just good thoughts and good vibes thrown their way. Hope everything works out for you. Great, awesome, have fun in Brazil. No, they're meaningful. The prayers that we pray for them will come to fruition because God cares about his children and God cares about those who do not yet know him. So when we pray, when we pray for others, it's an encouragement to their souls and it's an encouragement to ours, knowing that we have a God that answers prayer. And he doesn't just answer ours for ourselves, but rather he answers the prayers that we give towards and for other people. So Paul himself is rejoicing because he knows that he has other people praying for him. So we should find joy and comfort in knowing that other people are praying for us, and we should give other people the same joy and comfort by praying for them. It's not a formality. It's not something that we do because we said it and we don't want to be a liar, but we pray because we know that God answers prayer. And those prayers are an encouragement to Paul. Second, Paul can rejoice because he knows that he has the aid of Christ himself. Same verse in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that not only does he have other people praying for him, he knows that he has Christ himself interceding on his behalf to God the Father so that he may be delivered, whether through life or through death. Paul has Christ himself interceding on his behalf. Paul has Christ helping him, empowering him, giving him the ability to rejoice in the midst of horrible circumstances. So he has other people praying for him, and he has the power of Christ compelling him and working in him and moving in him and making him joyful. And lastly, Paul can rejoice, not just because of people's prayers, not just because of Christ's presence with him, but because Paul knows that Christ will be honored in his body no matter what the outcome. Paul knows that whether he dies or whether he lives, Christ is going to be glorified. And that brings him joy. Paul understands that whether he is released or whether he dies in prison and rots there forever, he knows that Christ is going to be glorified, and that brings him joy. It brings him a cause for rejoicing because Paul's aim as a citizen of heaven, as a gospel citizen, his aim is that Christ be glorified. That's his goal as a citizen of heaven. So when he says that he is comforted by the fact and he has courage in the fact that Christ is going to be honored, he means it because he cares about the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. And what that does is it shifts his mindset away from, woe is me, I'm in jail to, I, whatever the heck happens to me, God is going to be glorified and I'm going to be joyful because whether I stay in prison or whether I go to meet Jesus, the goal is going to be accomplished. So first, gospel citizens can rejoice and have courage in the midst of hardship. That's point number one. Gospel citizens, can, gospel citizens can rejoice and have courage in the middle, midst of hardship. Secondly, gospel citizens desire to be with Jesus. Gospel citizens desire to be with Jesus. 
second point today. We can see this is in verses 21 through 23. Let's read that together. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, that's a statement that Paul is making here. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Paul is torn between this idea of going to be with Jesus and being able to stay and be fruitful. Verse 23, yet I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Jesus, for that is far better. Paul's desire was to be with Jesus, to be with Christ. Paul's ultimate desire was to be with the one whom he loves, the one who saved him, the one that knocked him down on the road to Damascus, changed his name, changed his trajectory, took him from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, who transformed him from a follower of the devil to the follower of God, who took him an orphan and made him a son. He wanted to be with Jesus. The goal of Christianity is not heaven, just FYI. It's not a get-out-of-hell free card. It's not that you get your hand stamped and, you know, you get, it, you get the fast pass past the pearly gates or whatever. Like, it's not. The goal of Christianity is not heaven. It's not the things that we can get. It's not the best life that we can live. It's not the best relationships or the best marriage or the perfect kids or the full bank account or the fame and the honor of other people around us. The goal of Christianity is Christ. The goal of following Jesus is Jesus. Because Jesus is the treasure that's hidden in the field in Matthew chapter 13. You remember that story? Where we're Right, where Jesus says there was a treasure hidden in the field, somebody finds that treasure. What does the guy do when he finds the treasure? He sells everything that he has and he buys the field so that what? He can build a nice house on the field. He can like start growing wheat and making a profit. No, he sold everything that he had. He got the field so that he could get the treasure. The treasure is Jesus. Jesus is the pearl of great price in the same passage where somebody sells everything that they have so that they can have the, the one and only thing that can transform them and make them new. Paul desired to be with Jesus. And Paul desired to be with Jesus because Jesus was his desire. Jesus was the thing that he longed for. Jesus was the thing that he loved, the person whom he loved. Because he understands and knows that Jesus isn't just some sort of fixture on the wall that we look at. He isn't just some guy who died 2,000 years ago so that we can get into heaven. But he is a person who loves us and cares for us and that cultivates the same love and care in our hearts and in our lives. We don't become Christians to get something from God. And we don't become Christians to just get more of the benefits of what following Jesus are. But instead, we become Christians and we follow Jesus because we get God himself. So the question that we have to answer today and ask ourselves today is, do we truly desire Jesus? Is Jesus our desire or do we just desire the things that come along with him? Do we like being a part of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God actually has a lot of good stuff in it? Or do we, are we happy that we're a part of the kingdom of God because we get to spend time with the king? 
Today we have to ask the question, is our desire Jesus? Is our desire to be with him? Is our desire to know him? Is our desire to spend time with him? Is our desire to be transformed by him? Is our desire to be with God? I find myself often more focused and more in love with the things that God gives me here that I miss out on the, on the love that I could have for him. God himself. I, I mean, I'm just being straight with you. I'm honestly more focused on the things of this world, whether, and they're good things. I'm not saying that they're bad things. I'm focused on my marriage. I'm focused on my kids. I'm focused on my job. I'm focused on my motorcycles. I'm focused on lots of stuff. And none of those things are bad. I'm putting them all on the record. They're not bad. But honestly, what, what often happens is they eat up so much of my focus and my affection that I can miss the affection that I need to have for Jesus. And what ends up happening is those things become more important to me than spending time with the creator of the universe who loves me and died for me. And the, be- and, and what's, what the lie I think that I believe, and I'm sure that, that some of us in this room believe, is that if I focus just on Jesus as my only desire, then that somehow that takes away from the other desires in my life. When really, when Christ is our only desire, when Christ is our highest desire, the highest priority, the the person we want to be with the most, guess what it does? It actually enriches everything else in our lives. It does. It shores it up. It gives it a foundation. It gives us something that we can actually um, enjoy within it. My marriage is better when Christ is at the center of it, not myself. My kids are better when Christ is the center of my parenting, not just their good behavior. My, my, My job is much better when Christ is the focus of my job and not just executing on all of my tasks. I'm trying to think of how to make it, motorcycles work in that situation. <laughs> it works. I'll figure it out. We'll figure, we'll just, just take my word for it, it works. We need to ask the Lord to increase our desire for him. Because honestly, I'm sure that most of us in this room, myself included, don't have a full and un ending desire to be with Jesus. But the beauty of that is that Christ is always going to answer that prayer. If you ask him to make him more desirable to you, guess what he's going to do? He's going to make himself more desirable to you. He's faithful to answer the prayers that ask for for more of him, for an affection for him, for a desire for him, for him to be the ultimate aim and the ultimate goal and the ultimate priority in our lives. God's not going to say, I'll answer that one later. He's going to answer that prayer because Christ desires to be with us and he desires for us to be with him. Gospel citizens desire to be with Jesus. My third point is gospel citizens put others' needs above their own desires. Gospel citizens put others' needs above their own desires. We can see this in verses 21 through 26, the second part of the passage here, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But look here in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on whose account? Your. It's more necessary for Paul's for Paul to stay here, not because he wants to stay here. It's more necessary for Paul to stay on the earth doing what he's doing because it's a blessing to other people. 
Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's desire was to depart and to be with Jesus, but guess what Paul did? He set aside his desire so that other people could live. Gospel citizens put aside their desires, their rights, their freedoms, their entitlements, so that other people can live, so that other people can come to know Jesus, so that other people can flourish as human beings, so, so other people can know him in the way that Paul knows him. Paul sets aside his desires so that other people can live, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And, he's, and he follows through on that because he cares deeply for the needs of others. Now, Paul doesn't just do this because he's a nice guy or because he's like, well, you know, like, it's probably better for you guys if I stay, stick around because you guys don't know what you're doing and I got to figure that out for you or whatever. It's, it's, it's not because of that. What Paul is doing is, again, he's laying the groundwork for what comes next. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul really outlines what it means, truly what it means for someone to, to, to set aside everything that they deserve, everything that they have, everything that they are, so that other people can live. Guess who that, that they is in that passage? Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, God himself, Christ himself, who has everything, has every freedom, has every entitlement, has every single thing going for him, period, end of story. Guess what Jesus does? He sets aside his rights. He sets aside his desires. He sets aside all of the things that benefit him so that we can live. The God of the universe set aside all that he had so that you and I could come to know him. And Paul is mimicking that when he says, my desire is to depart, but I am going to stay because it's more beneficial for me to stay so that you can live. He's not doing it because he's a great, great person and he can just, gets all the, he just checks all the boxes. Paul does it because Christ did it for him. And we, as gospel citizens, do it because Christ did that for us. It's hard to set aside our desires. It's hard to set aside our rights. It's hard to set aside our freedoms. You know why? Because we enjoy them. They make us feel good. They make us feel like we're in control of our own lives. They make us feel like we can do whatever the heck we want. When in all reality, what true freedom is, is true freedom is setting aside your rights, setting aside your freedoms so that other people can live. Because the focus on other people living is going to bring us more joy and going to bring us more satisfaction and going to bring us a more joyful existence and a more God-glorifying existence than us just following through on whatever we want to do. And I mean, I'm not saying that I'm good at this by any stretch of the imagination. I consistently have to come back to the fact that Christ himself, God of the universe, holds the, word, holds the world together by the word of his power, put everything together, knows every hair in my head, knows every star, knows every name, spun it into existence, understands things from the beginning to the end, full of majesty and glory and dominion and power forever and ever and ever. He set aside his rights so that I could live. 
So when I don't want to watch Pride and Prejudice, I'm going to set aside my rights so Brooke can live. When I don't want to change the diapers in the middle of the night, I'm going to set aside my rights so that Brooke can sleep. When I'm at work and somebody is just being a complete jerk, I'm not going to respond to them in kind because I'm setting aside my rights so that somebody else can live. When my enemies come against me, I'm not going to attack them. I'm instead going to pray for them because I'm setting aside my rights so that other people can live. What Christ has done for us has a direct impact on what we do for others. And we don't do it out of our own willpower. We don't do it out of our own might. We don't do it out of our own type A, get it all done mentality. We get it done because Christ has transformed us to become like him. And when we become like him, we do the things that he did. Which in this case is setting aside what we want so that other people can live. As gospel citizens, we must slow down and pay attention to the desires of others and willingly lay down our desires and our rights so that the other people can live. This isn't just Paul here. He talks about it in Romans 14 as well. Where we, sure, we have all the rights and the freedoms or whatever we want to do. He's like, you guys can do a ton of stuff, but you can't do it if it's going to impact negatively somebody else. It's a fundamental mindset shift of instead of looking at things through the lens of what can I do, what is fair for me, what is right for me, we start thinking things through what is best for them, what is best for her, what is best for him, what is best for my kids, what is best for my coworkers, what is best for my wife, or what, what is best for my husband, what is best for the person in the grocery, what is best for those people. When we start thinking in those terms, we are thinking like gospel citizens. So gospel citizens put others desires or others need put others needs above their own desires that's point number three and then lastly point number four gospel citizens make god's glory their aim gospel citizens make god's glory their aim that's my last point we can see this in verses 20 and we can see this in verses 26 of chapter one I'll just read 18 through 20. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be what? Honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's jump down to verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to what? Glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. Paul had courage in verse 20. Where did his courage come from? But that I have full courage now as always because Christ will be honored. His courage came from Christ being glorified. His courage came from the fact that he, his ultimate goal and his ultimate aim was the, just to be with the one he loves and that other people would see how amazing and magnificent and how glorious Jesus Christ is. Why did Paul decide that he should stay and serve and love the church? Because he wanted them to glory 
in Christ Jesus. He wanted them to worship him. He wanted them to be transformed by him. He wanted them to experience the same joy and satisfaction and peace that he has in worshiping Christ. Paul's focus was not on his own comfort, obviously. And he wasn't even the focus of the comfort. The comfort of others wasn't even his focus. But Paul's focus was that Christ himself would be glorified. He wanted Christ to be glorified in the hearts of people. He wanted Christ to be praised and to be honored for the amazing God that he is. And he wanted Christ to be glorified ultimately in the world to those who do not yet know him. To, the, to those people that have never heard of him. Paul wanted them to be, Christ to be glorified in their hearts because when we pursue the glory of God above all else, when we pursue being with Jesus above all else, it's going to give us the highest level of joy, satisfaction, peace, and freedom. Because God's glory does something to us that we cannot describe and we cannot explain. It transforms us. It makes us new. It makes us into people that are just heavenly people. It makes us into gospel citizens. So Paul's focus was the glory of God. And when we are focused on the glory of God, it frees us up from being focused on ourselves. It frees us up from being focused on our own ego, on what's fair and what's unfair, on whether or not that this is right or that is right or this is wrong or that is wrong. It focuses us in on something that's much, much greater. God's glory ultimately changes us. That's why gospel citizens make their aim the glory of God. So because we are gospel citizens, because our identity is one of citizens as, as a citizen of heaven instead of a citizen of earth or even the citizen of the United States, we can now rejoice and have courage in the midst of hardship. Because we are citizens of a greater kingdom, we have the ability to desire to be with Jesus. Because we are gospel citizens, we get, to, we, get to, we get to put others' needs above our own. And because we are gospel citizens, we get to seek the glory of God above all things and find the deepest levels of satisfaction and meaning and purpose in the, our pursuit of the glory of God. So the question that we have to ask ourselves today, and as we walk away from this place, hopefully we continue to ask it, is that are we walking as gospel citizens? Do we desire to be with Jesus? Is he our goal? Is he our aim? Is God's glory the desire of our hearts? Do we desire to see him glorified in the lives of those around us? As gospel citizens, do we often put our own needs above others? Or are we consistently sacrificing so that others can live? The questions that we need to ask today, and they're, they're difficult to answer, because the answer is probably no. It's no for me. I don't always desire Jesus. I don't always desire to put everyone else's needs above my own. I often seek my own glory, my own fame, my own whatever. And oftentimes I'm not rejoicing in the midst of, my, midst of my tragedy and I'm not courageous in the midst of suffering and hardship. But the beautiful thing is that God doesn't just exclude us because we are not those things, but God has committed to making us those things. 
So we can ask the Holy Spirit to change us. We can ask the Lord to make us new. We can ask for a desire for him. We can ask for an affection for other people. We can ask for God's glory to be, for us to understand it and for us to be able to desire it as the aim and the goal of our relationships and even our lives. We get to ask God that. So let's ask the Lord that today. Let's ask that the Lord help us be strong and courageous in the midst of hardship. Let's ask the Lord that that we desire him, to be with him, to know him, to be transformed by him. Let's ask him to transform us that we might hold others more highly than ourselves. And then let's ask him that God's glory be the aim and the goal of our lives. So we're going to sing uh, one more song. We're going to worship together. Let's, let's, uh, let's pray and let's continue to reflect on those things. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you. God, you are an amazing God who loves us and cares for us more than we care about ourselves. God, thank you for Matt and Daniela. God, thank you for placing it in their hearts that others might know the glory of God that they have experienced in their lives. God, I pray for Matt and Daniela, God, that that they would consistently keep the desire for, for others to know you in front of their faces. God, I pray that they would desire to know you deeply, consistently. And that that would be the focal point and the center point of their marriage as they make this transition. God, that, that your glory and the desire to be with you, just it, it, it impacts the way they parent in this new place that they're going. God, I pray that that would be part of the, just the ethos of their lives, mm-hmm. Lord. That they would be like Paul in this passage. That they would rejoice in the hardship that they're going to encounter. God, that they would rejoice and be courageous in the face of adversity, knowing that Christ is going to be honored in them whether through life or through death, whether things succeed or whether they fail, whether people ridicule them and mock them whether, and whether they don't, whether they find a fridge and a bed or whether they don't. God is going to be glorified in that. God, put that in their hearts and help them hold on to it. Yeah. And God, do the same with us. Yeah. We love you. We praise you. Thank you. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.